Welcome to On the Table with Ashley Gould, a podcast where I explore ways in which we can lead more fulfilling lives and amplify human connection by communicating with less judgment and more respect. It's my great pleasure to welcome Marcella Privat to On the Table. Marcella is a high school teacher in Northern California in the Akalanes Unified High School District. She earned her bachelor's degree in Latin American Studies from the University of California at Berkeley and her teaching credentials in Spanish, English, and history. Marcella has honed her skills and methodology over the last 16 years in the classroom and has great insights into what she sees working and not working in education today. Marcella is extremely insightful and prides herself on her curriculum development, active listening, mentoring, and restorative justice expertise. Marcella's views are her own and are not related to the Akalani School District. Marcella is also my amazing sister-in-law, a devoted mother, daughter, and wife, and being the only daughter in my husband's family, I suspect honed her amazing facilitation skills being surrounded by her four brothers growing up. Thank you for joining me today, Marcella, and welcome. Thank you for having me, Ashley, and thanks for the introduction. Um, so I like to just get started to getting to know you a little bit. So can you tell us where you grew up and what kind of kid you were? Um, I spent the first 16 years of my life in Berkeley, California. And let's see what kind of a kid was I, I was always curious. I was social. I was smart, but I didn't try as hard as I could. I could always get by. Um, yeah. And what do you think led you to the field of education? It was very specific. Um, looking back now, you know, thinking of my childhood, I was, I did have, I always sort of liked to, I would translate for family members who didn't speak English. I would try to present things in ways to make it easier for different people to understand. Um, and there was a maternal instinct to want to sort of care for people. So I think my mom told me that um, she that in preschool, they used to call me Mother Hen. And so looking back, it's very fitting, but I knew exactly when I wanted to become a teacher. It was in 2007, when I um, was working part-time in an office at a high school, and I was also planning to go to law school, and I was working, I had been working full-time at an immigration and criminal defense law firm in El Cerrito, California, and their business was struggling a little bit, so they actually laid me off and reduced my hours, and so to supplement my income, I got a job at a high school. And I started talking to kids as they came into the office, um, helping them problem solve, helping them approach their teachers. Uh, and I was asked by the principal if I wanted to become um, a teaching assistant. And then at the same time, the law firm said that business was picking up. And did I want to come back full-time with a raise? And that was just a crossroads in my life. And I had to make that decision. And my gut just told me, I think I want to be a teacher. I don't and know I, if I ever heard that story. I yeah. love it. <laughs> um, 
And actually, um, we should mention that you are bilingual and that your mother and my mother-in-law is Peruvian. Um, so I do think, I don't know if that was part of what led you to education per se, but I do think like this, this ability and desire to like help translate and help people maybe did have some connection to getting into education. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. I do. <clears throat> I think from a young age, I had to meet people where they were as far as two things. I think culturally, their understanding of the United States um, and, you know, little things like living in the house with your hair wet is perfectly acceptable in this country, frowned upon by my mother's family. Um, uh, and yes, the translating, kind of knowing exactly, you know, you want to, I also wanted people's English to grow. So it was, there's a fine line between, you know, making someone dependent on you for translating and then also facilitating their language growth. Yeah. Um, amazing. Well, we have a lot of things to talk about um, as it relates to education. Uh, one, the first question I'm going to ask you, uh, which is kind of a hard one, but um, how has the role of the school in students' lives changed over the years, especially in the aftermath of COVID-19? I think, well, I think well, I'll address the first part, the, you know, um, separate from COVID. I think when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, um, especially coming from a family where education was highly valued, in my mom's middle-class family in Peru, and on my father's side, I was the first person to go to college. Um, he worked in construction and my grandfather was in the Air Force. So education was sort of the means to a better life. There was this expectation you go to college and you're going to, you know, leave and be successful and a lawyer, a doctor. And I don't think kids necessarily see things that way anymore. I think education is not necessarily their only option to becoming successful. I think people see social media influencers. They see very successful people who have dropped out of college. Um, so I think that sort of buy-in for education being the only means to success within, you know, certain careers is not it's hard to get that buy-in from students, especially talk about um, college debt. And people mm -hmm. thinking, wow, I'm going to, if my options are, you know, small liberal arts colleges and I'm going to go into debt, is that really in my best interest? So that sort of mindset has shifted um, in my experience. And COVID, I think, you, if you're asking how COVID changed the role of education in students' lives, I think it, I think there's a silver lining with COVID. COVID was awful in many ways. The pandemic, the lockdown, the isolation, um, the toll it took on, on our communities. However, COVID made me a better teacher, hands down. And it is because two things. One, I became much stronger in my technology skills, 
overnight. I mean, it was sink or swim. You had to learn to step outside of your comfort zone as a teacher. I had to record myself. I had to, you know, I was under a microscope. I'm, I'm, I'm teaching and the kids in their living room, their families listening to me. I, I had limited time with students. So it made me grow in that regard with technology and how to use technology efficiently with students, how it could be a tool for them. Um, but more importantly, what the pandemic did was it made everybody rethink what we were doing. And in my school, I was teaching at Piedmont Middle School at the time. I that We sort of fell into two camps as teachers. One group was um, just nervous. Like, how on earth am I going to do everything that I need to do that I normally do in the classroom? You know, how am I going to do this? within the confines of distance learning. The other group, which I think is the group that I belong to, is, okay, what are what are the things I can let go of? What are the essential learning outcomes for my students? And it made me stop and think, do I need this worksheet? Do I need this activity? What is the goal for my students? And what can I do that's more meaningful to help them engage more because we were doing distance learning and I, you didn't have that the affect where you can sort of gauge the vibe of the classroom, take a temperature check. You know, we resorted to things like a thumbs up, you know, writing a question in the chat box. Um, and then the other piece is, are there multiple ways in which students can show that they've met this essential learning outcome. And, you know, you're not doing a presentation in class. How can you do a group project if, so it just, it made me more creative as a teacher. It made me more deliberate as a teacher. Um, and then I think it made me sort of, uh, you know, it wasn't, I think people were, mm, they were confusing being deliberate and stripping down to just what they really want the kids to know with diluting curriculum. And I, I think that's a mistake. I think um, students, I think less is more sometimes. Mm -hmm. Well, let's actually move to, because to the methodology that you use in your classroom, because we've talked about that. I think it's really wonderful and a little bit unique probably. Um, so can you just talk a little bit about how you run your classroom, how you run assignments and tests and, you know, with the goal of one, meeting students where they are, but two, I think really getting the most out of them and then giving the most to them. <clears throat> okay. Um, so I just, I have tremendous admiration for people, for teachers who are deliberate and mindful with their education because it it also forces you to let go of ego. You know, teachers work so hard and education is not a one size fit all. So I can think my lessons are so great and I'll tell you a little bit about my approach, but there are days where those lessons don't do well, fall flat and terrible feeling to look out and see eyes sort of glaze over and a student reaching for their phone because they're bored. Um, and so it, you have to stop and go, you have to reflect, you have to ask for their input. Um, 
And then you have to go back to the drawing board. So it is a ton of work and it's not easy to necessarily just recycle your lesson plans year after year. The cohorts change, um, the world changes. Um, but I have two things that I always tell students. One is if you have made the effort to come to class, I'm going to make it worth your while. So there's no sort of hiding in the back. There's no just calling on the select few who raise their hands. It is my duty to engage you. Um, and there's kind of nowhere to hide. That said, I understand that people have bad days. I let them know, and we have deaths in the family. We, you know, you can not feel well. You maybe had practice. You're in a fight with a friend, a girlfriend. So I allow students the opportunity to pass. And you would think perhaps students would be like, I'm just going to pass, pass, pass. That's not really the case. Having to say pass is acknowledging at this moment, I don't have anything to say, but I don't think it feels good to always do that. I think it's nice for students to know they have an out, but in my experience, when you create an environment where participating is expected, they rise to the occasion. Um, so that's one thing. And the other is I have high expectations for my students, especially when it comes to writing. And to me, I, I first establish what are the different ways in which we write. You know, we're not going to always write this five paragraph essay, but the, the, the importance of communicating effectively and the danger of communicating ineffectively. Um, and I, I have them relate to this by talking about texting. I mean, it's just so part of their lives. Um, and so, for example, you know, it's very new territory for us as teachers with um, AI, like chat GPT. And I tell students, you know, I'm, I'm truly not in the business of being a detective. I didn't sign up to sort of like, aha, I caught you. I'm in the business of making you feel like you're growing and you're building a skill and that feels good. And I'm also, I also want you to believe that what you have to say is important and that sometimes no one can say it the way you can say it. So I relate ChatGPT to a breakup text. Would you use ChatGPT to send a breakup text? Just plug it in and then just send it. And then when they tell me no, I ask them why. Well, the fear that it could convey something I didn't really mean, or it doesn't sound like me, or um, does that mean that every student is going to say, you're right, Miss PG. Yeah, I'll never <laughs> use ChatGPT. Then the other thing is, why are they using ChatGPT? Because it's easy. Because and so what is the part that's hard that they're sort of unwilling to push through and why? Um, so I tell them, I'm going to give you a rubric. And I've worked very hard on my grading rubrics to make them student friendly. There's no point in having a rubric and saying, look at the rubric. That's why you got the grade if the kid can't even interpret the rubric. So um, I tell them everything that you turn in, I want you to consider as a draft. and. This is where, again, two camps of teachers, a lot of teachers, you know, and, and these are professionals. I always try to assume positive intent who really do feel 
well, it is our job to prepare students for the real world. So why would I let, you know, I, I gate, I scaffolded the lesson, you know, we worked on the thesis, we worked on the notes, we worked on the outline, and now you produce something and I grade it. And then the, the notion that in the real world, there's no room for redos or retakes, I think is, is wrong. You can retake your driver's license. You can take the bar, uh, a second time, a third time. Um, but also where writing is in the real world, you have multiple, it's the best thing to have multiple eyes looking at something, to edit it, to put it to bed, to get feedback, to go back. And sometimes you don't change anything. And sometimes people give you advice where you, they think you should make changes and you don't want to make those changes because you feel it compromises the integrity of what you want to say. So I tell them, I'm going to give you feedback and take it or leave it. You still want to stay true to what you're writing. Um, but uh, so I allow retakes. I encourage I encourage them to think of what they first submit as a draft. And it is a lot of work because as a teacher, it's not one and done. Um, and it requires you to sort of really be there and give concrete feedback. Feedback is a hard thing to give because you don't want to tell a student what to do. You want to show them other ways in which something could be presented. You want to help them put themselves in the mind of the reader. A lot of times students are writing with the assumption that the reader knows exactly what they're saying and they think they've said it, but they haven't. So I'd say that high expectations, but really flexible in terms of I'm going to allow you multiple attempts to show what you know. Um, and I forgot the other thing that I said. <laughs> well, and I know that you've, Talked, talked about so you have essays but you also have tests in class and the ability to retake the ability to sort of what i'm going to say like lower the anxiety of one particular day of having to show everything that you've learned in this one moment where a student may not be in the best mind frame to do that um i think that's really powerful uh one of the things i wanted to talk about is the pressure that kids are feeling, whether it's, I'm not sure if it comes from us as parents, the school system, from each other, it maybe comes from all of those places. But, and and I actually have been listening to a podcast that talks about how stress can actually be a positive, it can be good, particularly yeah. if you think of it as a positive. Um, but um but but I also we also have to recognize that it feels like kids are under more pressure than when we were growing up. I'm not sure if it's true or not, but it certainly feels that way. So this feels like a nice way to lower that pressure, to allow them to focus on really learning the material rather than showing what they've learned, you know, on this particular day in this particular moment. And I don't I don't know if you are seeing a trend in that direction or if that if what you're doing is more unusual. Do you have a sense of that? So I've been part of several committees um, for many years now where uh, 
two things are addressed. One is um, restorative justice, and that could be a student cheats on a test. That could be you, a student plagiarized. And is, is there a way besides giving them a zero or, um, you know, something punitive, you know, suspending them um, that could perhaps be more effective if the goal is I'd like you to learn the lesson of like why this is harmful and restorative justice is all about repairing the harm, but also remembering that these are young people um, and that these are teachable moments where they can learn from their mistakes. Um, the, the, I think someone said in one of our grading for equity workshops that, you know, we're, we're going to look back like we look back on the pandemic and we question, you know, like, were masks effective or what are different ways we could have handled something? Um, I think we're at a time right now in education where people are struggling to adapt to where students are right now. And I think people, like I said, I really do trust, I really do believe in positive intent. I don't think that there are teachers who think, I would, I want to punish students. It's their fault. If they get a zero, I'm, you know, I really do think people think this is how education is. This is how it should be. Um, this is preparing them for the real world. And then there are those of us who are like, you know, we've changed the way we get groceries. We've changed the way we travel. We've changed the way we do so many things. Why is it that education is sort of not evolving? I believe at the rate that it should. And when you look at the history of education, you know, education has not been compulsory for that long. And the way that education was designed, you know, so many things were designed based on what felt right at the time, like the industrial age, you know, like bells and time to shift and go to here and go to here and go to here. And you, know, you question, you question, is it, is it, is it healthy for a kid to be sitting for most of the day? Um, and what is it that we want them to learn? And is, is, are these really the things that we think are valuable for them to learn? So I think people are questioning it, um, especially grading. Um, grading, uh, many schools are changing their grading policies. Um, and this is very, this is very contentious. There are people who truly feel one way and I think there's a danger in thinking that there's sort of one way to do things. And I think there's, I think what's sad is that reflecting on your teaching practice should be something that you do all the time. I think there are a lot of people who feel that being asked to reflect on their teaching practice and their grading practice and think, if there, is there a better, more equitable way to do things feels like an attack. So there's a larger, there, you know, teachers are, many teachers are unable to afford to live in the cities where they teach. They're in debt. So I just think that there are all these bureaucratic things going on that sort of get, sort of create this sort of administration versus, you know, teaching. And, um, 
you put all of that aside, um, you just, it's very hard to deny the fact that there are multiple ways a student can show what they know. It's, it is the right thing to do to stop and ask if at this point in 2023, are the skills, are, are the things that we're teaching still relevant? The books that we're choosing um, and our students, the way that students consume information on their phones is just scrolling and skimming and scanning and to not realize that and try to adapt the curriculum to sort of get more buy-in because I say buy-in because I, I, I believe, I firmly believe that all children can learn. And I firmly believe that children feed off of momentum. Who doesn't want to feel good about what they're learning? And so once you get the buy-in and that comes with a lot, that's also building relationships and, you know, you read out loud in class and you show them that that sounded so intimidating when you read that paragraph three times in a row, but let's break that down. This is what the person's actually saying. You know, Shakespeare, like this is still relatable today. This is about love. This is about this. And then for them to feel like, oh, that's all it is. Sort of giving them access to the curriculum in different ways. Um, So I I feel like I'm part of the change, but I'm I'm very aware that it's going to take a long time. Just like we're going to look back and be like, I can't believe we didn't have child labor laws. (laughs) We're going to look back and be like, I can't believe we used to have a hundred point grading scale. Yeah. Uh, Well, I feel like there are so, there's so many things to to dig into and talk about here. I, um, I don't think we have enough time. (laughs) I know, I know. Uh, But we'll cover some of it. So I, I wanted to ask you two questions and they're, you know, they're sort of all related. One is what do you think the objective of a high school education is? And then the other is what do you think your students feel the objective of a high school education is? And I asked that because I have, as you know, my boys are, are both in high school and they have a lot more curiosity about why they need to do certain things. Like, why do I need to take Latin or why do I need to study so much science if I know I don't want to be a scientist? Whereas I just kind of put my head down and did the work I was supposed to do. And I think that there's a value in them asking these questions. And I think some of it comes from, you know, you had talked about, they see people being like social media influencers and making a living and people don't have to you know, go to college to have um, a successful life, which I believe is true. But I also, you know, like you still believe that education is critically important to our ability to think and problem solve and and even decide what we want to do or be or the change we want to make in the world. But I think we have to acknowledge that they are asking these questions. And so I think we we both have to ask what is what is the purpose of a high school education? And then we need to understand what they're thinking about it in order to hopefully end up in a place where we're serving them and not just in what they think today, but what they want to become and what we not just as parents but as society want our children to be able to achieve as they, you know, take over the world as yeah. as they go by. Excellent question. Um, 
And <clears throat> you see, there's so many layers to education. And one of the things that came up as you were asking me that question was um, uh, sort of mobility within a society, uh, socioeconomic mobility, cultural. Um, and I tell my students that, you know, we look back in history and you were sort of born into a culture. There still is generational wealth and, you know, there's not the notion of meritocracy, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It's sort of unfair to, to apply that concept to students, to people when there are so many factors, racism, um, you know, disabilities. Uh, however, I, I think a romantic notion of education which I feel, you know, at the heart of it, this is really what it should be, is allowing you two things. One, mobility, upward mobility. You're not necessarily born a farmer and you're a farmer. You're born a baker. You're born whatever, a, a, a lawyer. The expect Your father was a lawyer. The expectation is you will be. Um, and it's hard to know what you don't know. And so I think education provides... If, if we choose, it, it, it depends on what we're asking students to learn. But the idea that there are areas of knowledge that you didn't know you were interested in because you'd never studied it before, um, I think that that is valuable. Also, it's valuable to know about... Um, areas of study that maybe you're not interested in. You know, I'm not a lawyer, but is it good for me to know about the legislative branches? And yes, I'm not, um, you know, I'm not necessarily, you know, math was never a strength of mine, but it does it come into play in, you know, in different levels in my life? Yes. So I think that's one area is providing you the opportunity to then apply to a college so you can specialize in something and to give you options, as you said. Um, also, you know, there are questions about like the SAT that's based on an army, you know, aptitude test, how I don't want to say that if you go to college, all schools are the same. Um, this, there's no sort of like I can't, it's hard to make a blanket statement about education when education isn't equitable um, and the support that certain students get at home. However, if 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 all students had meaningful uh, educational, essential learning outcomes that provided them the opportunity to learn about multiple things and then sort of hone skills and start to see what they're interested in, that's great. Um, the other piece is skills. I This is where, this is why I don't like to give zeros because I don't feel it's my job to necessarily just teach you about deadlines. I think more importantly, I want you to go into the world with skills, communication skills, writing, listening, reading. If you're taking a second language, to take these skills, you will figure out the natural consequences that exist in different areas of life. You might get a speeding ticket 
you might talk your way out of that speeding ticket. You pay your taxes late, but eventually you have to pay them. Students figure it out. I, I see students who I thought, oh God, this knucklehead, you know, who gave me such a hard time. And they figure it out. The path is not linear. Um, but because they had that high school degree, they were afforded more, more options. Um, now, some students choose to take the what we call in California the Chesapeake or their GED, and they still have options. You can go to community college, you know. So the other piece that you asked, and I'm blinking, what do students think? Um, oh. One more thing. Um, education should provide students two pieces as far as identity and an ability to sort of connect and relate to what they're learning, but also the ability to have insight into people different from them, which was why I think that multicultural components should be embedded into every single subject. If you are learning about you know, math, I'm not a math teacher, so I know it's very easy for me to say, but you you should be, if you're learning about fractions and percentages, how can you tie that to, I don't know, um, populate, like demographics, for example. Um, and if you are learning about science, you know, are you are you exposing students to scientists from all over the world from all different cultures or how can you take what you're learning in science and apply it to um political social you know factors um and religion is a big one you know i think if students see things on tv they watch movies and certain cultures and certain religions are presented um there's not necessarily a lot of diversity in in the way that different cultures are presented and it's nice to have different lenses um and i have found that really powerful for my students we read a book last year called Educated about a woman who is um, grows up in a sort of extreme extremist Mormon off the grid um, family in Idaho. Most of my students could not relate to that lifestyle, but they could relate to many of this woman's struggles. And then it was also just fascinating for them to be, to sort of step outside the bubble of what is the Bay Area and out into the rest of the country. And um, so I say all these things to my students and I say it with enthusiasm and I say it with conviction. It's great for you to know this. I'm. How can you relate to this? And hey, this is going to serve you well in the real world. But I'm very aware that they don't always share my enthusiasm. And I do think that they're questioning what is useful to them. Um, I just think they would have a clearer and more genuine understanding of how what they're learning is more valuable if they're feeling successful, if they're feeling, um, like I say, I'm baking and I bake something and I go, I want to be a baker and and it, I I burn my my cake and I don't have the opportunity to experiment with different ingredients. I don't have the opportunity to try again. And what's the purpose? Um, 
So I think many students don't see the upward mobility in their courses because the way that many courses are designed, once you get, you know, a low grade, boom, your grade drops and you have a C and it just, you start doing the math and you're like, oh my gosh, how could I possibly get a good grade in this class? The way that the grading structure is designed. I can't retake something. I can't, I'm not given the opportunity to try again. I'm not given the opportunity to show what I know in a different way. Um, so why try? So Marcel, we've talked a lot about the U.S. educational system and an evolution that you think would benefit students and frankly, all of us as society, as our students grow up and take over the world. There are a lot of different ways I could see the educational system changing, and I know it will be hard to do, but if in 50 years you look back and if we had done things right, what are you? What do you think are the most important changes that would occur? Um, they could be related to the way that we're grading and testing students, could be related to the way that we're structuring the physical school day so that students are not sitting as much and they're taking some more active learning roles. Um, it could also be that they have more um, choice in what they're taking so that if they really are not interested in language or science, that after some minimal baseline, like maybe one year, that they have more flexibility, like in college, so that maybe they have more interest um, in the subjects that they're, they're taking. So I'm just interested in your thoughts with all of the time that you've spent in the system and thinking about it. Um, so this is like become sort of, I don't know, it's not necessarily cliche, but I, I, I keep hearing this like on Instagram and in um, different, I don't know, is people finding out what is their why your why. And I, I think if we had to just stop and just, we need, we need a launching point. We need a, um, I think it boils down to what are we teaching kids and why? So once you, you, you cannot adjust, you cannot begin to truly reflect on adjust on adjust how students are learning when they're learning, um, until you have the what, like, and you can't have the what, what they're learning unless you truly know why. So I I think why should a student learn this math concept? Why should a student learn this science concept? And as you mentioned before, you know, students don't know what they don't know. So I think it's perfectly appropriate to expose them to um, multiple subjects. Um, and there are benefits in their actual life. You know, when will these things become relevant? If they're learning about biology, if they're learning about, you know, the reproductive organs. Um, certainly what many students are currently learning is beneficial to their lives. Um, but once we really reflect on what students are learning and why we feel as, as a society that this is beneficial to them, um, we then have to think, okay, do we have too many? Like, it, how is this, is this, is this doable? So language learning, for example, when I taught Spanish, um, I found that many teachers were really uh, limited and, and uh, tied too tightly to their textbook. And the textbook is not um, the curriculum, the textbook is is like it's an instrument um, for for trying to teach this curriculum. So, you know, we we do have standards, and um, standards are a good thing. 
this is how I look at standards. If we didn't have them, we would have a situation where teachers were making decisions as to who should be learning what. And that's dangerous because you can say, well, this student, you know, clearly they're not going to go to college and they want to be a mechanic. And so they shouldn't, and we shouldn't be, not that there's anything wrong with being a mechanic, but we should not limit students. We should try to expose them to as much as possible, then they can make that decision. But that is sort of the danger, the danger of not having standards. You you have standards, then you say, I believe all students can meet these standards. But like I said before, it's not a one size fit all, fits all. And so teachers, it, it's this is I want to acknowledge too that this is hard. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of trial and error. But you you have to approach education from that standpoint. Here are here I'm being tasked with teaching students these essential learning out, outcomes, and I cannot expect students with totally different readiness levels and learning styles to adapt their learning styles to my teaching style. It has to be the opposite. I have to adapt my teaching style to their learning needs in order to help them grow. And like I said, it's, it's a lot of work. Um, and so that's one piece. Start you know, with what we're doing and why, and then the how. And I think you were mentioning before, the how can look so different. Uh, it does not have to be all students in rows and individual desks um, taking notes and then, you know, rote memorization. No. Um, and adding elements into embedding these elements into curriculum with um, what we what we recognize that we value as a society, such as empathy, um, social justice, um, collaboration, problem solving, soft skills. Um, so finding ways to when when you do that, I think what you do is you create a more equitable classroom because you're going to have different opportunities for students to shine and to lead. So I tell students, hey, if you're like, if you're very good at art, this is going to be a great project for you. If you're not, I'm going to ask you to step outside of your comfort zone a little bit, which which encourages growth. So you can't just have sort of one way to do it. You have to have... Um, you know, different modalities. Um, so with learning the language, for example, when I looked at those content standards, nowhere does it say you must do all 12 chapters of this textbook in every single, uh, you know, um, worksheet. It said things. It was a language learning continuum. And it's for all languages. So for example, I will say like in at level one, students will, you know, that's, you always want to come from that point. What, what will students be able to do by the end of this? And if you keep that tight, it helps you not to digress that much as a teacher and to really stay true. Like, do I have to say this right now? You know, like, uh, do I have to have students do this to help them meet this particular goal? So in level one, it might say students will learn how to, uh, students will be able to greet, effectively greet someone and um, discuss um, where they're from and their likes and dislikes. Boom. So how many likes and dislikes should they be able to say in Spanish to show that they've met that goal? How many greetings? And it doesn't say that. So I'm, I tell myself realistically, are these students 
really going to remember these like 60 word vocab quizzes. If I had to plop them, I just think real world, if I had to plop them into a remote village in Guatemala, I want them to know, hola, adios, de donde eres. So focus on that and have them know that really well um, and become more confident in their pronunciation. So sort of what's guiding your practice? Yeah. Um, so a lot yeah. of what a lot of what you're talking about is teaching skills and open-mindedness, frankly. Um it, it's actually a little bit less focused on sort of the actual curriculum or the way we're teaching, you know, the 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 way the day is set up or that sort of a thing. What you're talking about is I think very difficult because it <laughs> requires every teacher to do the kind of introspection that you do. Do you think that there are, and I know that there's ongoing education for teachers, but I don't know how widely available it is or how much it varies in quality. Do you think that that, that is an area that we should be putting more focus on in our educational system to support teachers growth because um because at the end of the day how much a student gets out of a class has to do with their interest um and and their teacher's interest and not just their teacher's interest but their teacher's ability to not just focus on how they can teach it but how they can teach it to each class which changes Yes, I think teacher training and teacher support. I think, you know, as I sort of alluded to before, there is this, I think teachers feel often under attack. And I think teachers feel, you know, overpaid, I mean, overpaid, <laughs> underpaid and overworked. And um, I, I, I really do start by trying to build a relationship with my students and, and the parents. So building that trust you know, that goes a long way. I know if please don't hesitate to reach out if you ever have a question about your student's grade. So I have to have my ducks in a row because I have to back up what I'm saying. So I have to have conviction in that what I'm teaching is meaningful and it matches the content standards. Is my grading practice equitable? Is it clear to students? Um, and are their expectations clear? So it has to be crystal clear. Here's what I want you to learn. Here's how we're going to do it. Here's how you know, you'll know if you got it. And that takes a lot of work. But once you have that, the tweaking here and there becomes easier. And um, I need to be able to tell a parent, I need to be able to tell a student uh, why they earned the grade they did and what the grade means. So the grade means less that you got to be, but you know, it's, I'm very deliberate. The grade means, I think when there's meaning tied to it, that you're doing an excellent job with your, you know, written communication, but it's the speaking component. And I've had students with terrible anxiety who have told me, I really don't want to present in front of the class. We've come up with alternative ways. They um, use Screencastify to record themselves. Sometimes they'll come during lunch and present to me or to a smaller group. I mean, it's, it's, so yes, it is hard, but it is not impossible. It is not impossible. I mean, it just really, uh, I think it will take a long time, but I think teacher support, you know, in my district, for example, they're doing something called equity university. So they're providing teachers with, um, 
upward mobility on the pay scale through units that you're going to get through this um, program that the school is offering. So it's essentially you're taking a class and it's about equity. And I signed up for it. Um, I'm trying to think of, there was another component to what you were saying about how I think education could look different down the road. Um, and every time we've paused, I've thought of something new that I wanted to say, but this one was really important because it had to do with the students and the buy-in. Mm, perhaps it will come to me. Okay. Well, let me ask you this and maybe this will help you think of it or you'll have other thoughts, but, um, so you've been teaching for 16 years. Things have changed a lot during that time. Also, you were a student before that. Yeah. Have you, do you have sort of kernels or like fundamental truths that you've learned about children and how best to support learning um, over that time? One, you have to believe that all students can learn. You also have to believe that all students want to learn and what students show. I mean, like you really have to put your ego to aside. And when you work on that assumption from that assumption, like it's, I've had students be disrespectful. I've had students um, become frustrated. I've had students who don't show up to class and, you know, I'm, I, I cannot solve all of their problems, but it can be, I, I, it's very fulfilling to know that I'm a small piece in their life, in their journey, and, and especially in this, their journey of education, where I help them achieve success. And success looks different to different people. For some people, it's showing up. For some people, it's, okay, you're doing everything that you're supposed to be doing, but you're so literal. I want you to take a chance. I want you to take a risk with, you know, what you say. So, um. I, also, this is a great piece of advice that someone told me one time, because it can be scary sometimes. Um, you think like, oh gosh, you know, lesson didn't go well, or oh gosh, the student got a bad grade and the parent might be upset, or um, oh, I didn't get through that book. We didn't pace ourselves accordingly. I mean, you're constantly sort of questioning and pivoting. Um, but this, one of my old principals said to me, you have to approach education from the mindset that everything is solvable, that everything is solvable. It might not be easy, but it is, you know, it is solvable. So I, I guess those would be my three. Yeah. And um, what a beautiful way to think about life generally, right? Yes. Is yeah. Solvable. yeah. Except for may not be easy. It may not be right in front of us. It may not be linear, but it is always solvable. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I, um, what you mentioned before about students sitting down, um, all day. So if, if someone came to me and said, okay, we, we've made a decision, the California department of education that we want to, um, reduce the amount of time that students are sitting indoors. And how can we do that? That would be complex and a lot of different factors would come into play but is it solvable yeah will it take a while to sort of turn the tide um yes great well let's i want to move on um talk a little bit about 
my company. So I I started the On the Table podcast to coincide and amplify the mission of my brand, Amatand, which is an elevated everyday tabletop brand with a goal of increasing connectedness among people. Um, each week, we send our guests a product from our current collection. And Marcella, we sent you two of our blue ceramic mugs. Drinking out of one right now. <laughs> um, these are actually hand-thrown in Utah. Um, we also sent my my current favorite bedtime tea, our strawberry rhubarb jam, and an amazing Italian chocolate bar. So um, in the products that we are designing and in what you've received, the item that we designed was the ceramic mug. We focus on three areas, how an object is made, how it looks, and how it functions. On the mug, we spent a lot of time on the mug shape, both the amount of liquid the mug holds, and we ended up with comfortably 12 ounces and up to 14 ounces, the shape of the mug, um, the feel of the handle, and the color. And um, we've also learned that hand-throwing mugs is a quite intensive process. It actually takes three days to let the body of the mug dry in order to be able to attach the handle. So it's really an intensive sort of labor of love. I love the shape that we ended up with and that you can put these in the dishwasher and the microwave without the handle getting hot. Um, and because they're hand-thrown, no two mugs are exactly alike. And I'm not sure if you noticed that, but that's another thing that we love about them. Um, the jam is delicious and it is made in the Hudson River Valley in um, using fruit from local farms, both women-owned and multi-generational family farms, which is very cool. Um, and the chocolate bar is this amazing company called Lavarati. I met the team at a show in Paris and I was immediately impressed by their beautiful packaging and their friendliness. And then I tried the chocolate and it's just amazing to me. Um, I also love that the brand started in 1938. So it's, it's a brand oh, wow. that's been around for a long time. Um, and um, Alberto Lavarati started the shop um, in the COVID pandemic, when the brand was struggling, two men, Fabio Fazio and David Petrini, um, bought it. And they both had ties to Varazzi, Italy. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but that's where the brand was started. And they both had memories of the chocolate, which I think is amazing. Um, so Fabio apparently spent his holidays at his grandparents' house in Varazzi, and they always had a Lavarati Easter egg there. And um, I love this quote. He said, the scent of chocolate filled the dining room. And for me, it still means childhood spring vacation. And he worked to buy and continue the brand as an attempt to go back to his childhood calling chocolate a powerful time machine that invests all five senses to create a sixth one memory. Um, and I, so I love the brand. I love the packaging. The bar you received can be bought alone or in a book of bars that are packaged in an open box that, that looks like it's holding a series of books, which also feels fitting for you as a teacher. Um, and they consider each bar and product a chapter in their history, which is also, I think, really lovely. Um, and I love how the brand mirrors so much what I'm trying to achieve with Amatond, which is time taken to create high quality products with memory, family and human connection at the core of them. So we're still working on how to best ship 
the chocolate products. Some of them are more prone to temperature variation, but we're really excited to have their bars, a hazelnut spread that's delicious. And they also have really cool chocolate filled pencils that we'll be offering as well. So I'd love any feedback that you have on the products that you've received so far. And I know you haven't had them so long, so we can also follow up and add in the show notes any comments you have. We are looking for your honest feedback because we're designing a lot of our own products gives us the opportunity to change design as well. So we're really um, looking forward to feedback. Now? Any feedback you have now, but we can also, I'll also, any feedback you give me later, I'll just put in the show notes. The, I guess the one I can speak to the most is the mug. And I absolutely love it because, well, first of all, I really like the color. This is like cerulean blue. I'm not exactly sure what it is. Um, I like the feel. It's sort of, uh, it's, it's texture just enough that really reminds you that it's made by hand um i think it holds the perfect amount of liquid um i'm somebody who i i actually will take that mug to my classroom i don't take a tumbler with a top up i'll take that i'll sip it in the car i have a microwave in my classroom my students will see me i'll i might even hear that this is so gross like twice <laughs> so <laughs> The fact that it's microwavable is huge. Um, and the fact that it is um, dishwasher safe. That's just, I, I'm 43 years old. And as I've gotten older, I try to just, I like quality, but I also just don't have, I'm not buying a sweater that has to be dry cleaned. I just can't, I don't have the time for it. And to be able to have something that's nice, but it's also functional is it's a big deal. It's a huge focus for the brand. Um, I talk a lot about how I had, you know, when I got married to your brother, um, <laughs> we, we got all of these beautiful gifts, China and crystal yep. and silver, and I never use them because it's just too much work. Um, so one of the, the focuses for our products is that they're highly practical, beautiful, and highly practical. So love. That. I also like supporting um, small businesses. Yeah. Know, small businesses, women-owned businesses. Um, what you said at the very beginning reminded me of what I wanted to say. Oh, good. Okay. So you talked about building this brand um, in an effort to also create a sense of connectedness. Um, and that, that when you were mentioning, like, what are sort of some of the things that, um, the fundamental truths I've learned about education. I think I mentioned three. I'm going to add another one. And that is the importance of relationships. Relationships um, with, you know, teachers and, and their colleagues, teachers and administration, teachers and parents, but most importantly, teachers and students. And even more important than that, the connection um, between students. And um, some of the best advice I got when I was teaching middle school was, Spend a month establishing your routine, even if you have to sacrifice a little, the, little bit of the curriculum to go over, you know, where the markers go and what day do we turn this in? You, you have to really like ingrain that in students' brains and then it becomes second nature. So you're not saying that's not where that goes or the, so. But with 
what I was never told, which just started to become more um, intuitive was take a month or so to build connections in your classroom. So sometimes they come in and I'm not talking about English. I'm talking about, I, I start with really simple questions um, to sort of get people feeling comfortable. Like everybody go around and say what you had for breakfast. If you didn't eat breakfast or you want to pass, you can pass. But these organic conversations start to happen. You have, you know, some kid who listened to heavy metal on this side of the room, and then some sort of like quiet kid who's a gamer is like, they kind of look at each other because they both like Lucky Charms. And you start to build a connection. And I think we forget that. We're, we, we have this thing called think, pair, share. You think about something, you pair with someone and you share out loud. And you're asking the students to talk about topics like death love, um, loss, you know, we're, we're reading these heavy books and then turn to someone and talk about it or actually raise your hand and feel comfortable enough to share something about this out loud. So you have to build a sense of community in your classroom. And once I find that once I do that, it's then harder it's, then it's easier to do the hard things. You mentioned before, you know, we can't, is it is it a good thing to eliminate stress from students' lives? No, we can reduce the stress by not piling on homework that has been proven ineffective, but teaching them to cope with stress is even better. So if you are a reluctant speaker or you're like, I want to raise my hand and say this, but I'm not sure if this is the answer. Like, I applaud that in my class. I shout it out. I encourage it. Um, when when someone is having a side conversation, you know, I could be like, shh. But I try to be very deliberate and, hey, if this is really important, you you two can step outside. But I just want to make sure that Ashley, for example, has your full attention because she's saying something pretty important, or you might have a follow-up question. So that sense of community then makes doing the harder things um, easier. It also makes it easier to have hard conversations. It's a hard conversation to have just with someone when you say, hey, I noticed you haven't been to class lately. Why should they trust me? If I can say something like, hey, you don't have to tell me. I just want you to know I'm here for you. Um, a lot of the assignments are online, but, you know, or you think they may have plagiarized something, you know, to have, you, you have to, you will have hard conversations. Things will be hard, but when there is that sense of community and connectedness and trust, I think my students trust that I have their best interests in mind. And I have had to do some hard things and um, be the bad guy. Yeah. Um, but I always tell them, you know, I, I hold you to a high standard, but I'm also here to support you. Okay, that's well, it's so thank you for sharing that. And it's, and it is so fundamental to what I'm trying to do with Amatand, which is, you know, we need to be able to have hard conversations. It's harder to have hard conversations if you don't have a sense of like community and trust right. and connectedness. Um, and so it may sound silly that objects can help with that, but I believe that they can. And um, that if you, for example, are sharing food together and you have these beautiful objects you're using that are com comforting and comfortable, it just makes it easier to have more real conversation. Um, and we shouldn't shy away from that. And 
Um, and we'll also be, you know, and that's part of the reason I want to do this podcast to be able to talk about, give people ideas for how to then have those conversations. I think there's a lot that people can learn from this episode, not just about education in our children, but also frankly about ourselves and how to, how to relate to other people more. And that is fundamentally the goal of what I'm trying to do. So thank you so much. Um, so at, in every episode, I ask guests five questions to round out our discussion. And um, and so let's just start. Uh, so the first question is um, very similar to what we were just talking about. As we explore in my brand, Amatand, objects can hold a lot of meaning for us. They can tie us to the past, enable us to enjoy the present moment more, which is where I'm really focused with the brand, and even take us into the future. Can you share an object from your life, whether you still have it or not, that holds a lot of meaning for you and tell us why. Photographs hold a lot of meaning for me. I recently had to collect photos for my father's funeral. And at first it proved very painful. Um, but uh, I kept getting texts from people that were deviating from the normal, sorry for your loss kind of had these really cool ways of um expressing their you know feeling bad that I lost someone and somebody said um may your father's memory be a blessing and so the pictures reminded me of that so all my pictures <laughs> and they really can take us to the past I was actually uh we're as you know we're going to be moving soon so I've been like decluttering yeah. and going through boxes of old things and going through old pictures is is so incredibly moving and can also be quite emotional yeah and um and remind us of how quickly time passes and how we should you know savor every moment we can um thank you for sharing that um next question can you share a favorite tradition with us it could be something from when you were a child or something you do with your children today or anything in between could revolve around a recipe from your family or a place you go. Um, let us know why you chose whatever that tradition is. So my daughter, Isabella, and I used to have this thing called a mother-daughter day. And it was like a personal day that we would do, I don't know, maybe like once once a year. You know, I I wouldn't go to work. She wouldn't go to school. And we would sort of, you know, go out to eat, go to the movies, just um, go to a park, go to a museum. And I don't know how, I think she came up with that name. And now here I am years later, she's 21 and my son is eight. And so we have continued with mother Sundays. Um, And it's not always a school day, um, but it usually feels sort of like unexpected. It's like maybe we go out to dinner after school, something that we don't normally do. And it's sort of this this um, deliberate one-on-one time with my kid. Um, and I treasure those moments. I love it. I think I need to start that. Um, okay, another question. Are you in a phase in your life where you enjoy entertaining in your home? Why or why not? Ah, so I would like to be, um, but I haven't been in a position um, in 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 homes being rented and moving in a while, and I actually really do miss it. 
And speaking of functional items, um, it's been very hard uh, for my mother to choose what's important and what's not. And we now have half the space she used to have in her home. We live together. And so you really have to stop and go, is this meaningful to me? Why is this functional? Um, The functionality piece really becomes important as you get older, but you still want, you know, nice things. Sometimes something seems functional, but it's not well-made and then it doesn't last. So I found myself sort of um, wanting to entertain and wanting everything to be like nice looking, um, but also like not a lot of fuss. A lot of people have kids. Um, so, so yes, I'm getting there. Well, and I will just say that you're very good at it. Uh, you have just such a warm personality and you want to take care of everyone. And that really shows like no matter what what we're doing as a family. And one of the things that, you know, I want to talk more about with the brand and the podcast is everything doesn't have to be homemade. Everything doesn't have to be perfect. Yeah. It's really right. about spending the time together yes. and connecting as humans and not, you know, it's great to have beautiful things and you can get your beautiful things through Amatand. But, <laughs> but the most important thing is just doing it right and taking the time. So one of the reasons I like to ask this question is to try to see if I can figure out what the friction is to solve it and right. help people solve that friction. So um so thanks for that. Um do you have one or two top resources, books, websites or courses you can recommend to our listeners? Um could be related to education or just to life, really could be anything that you find, you know, helpful, meaningful. Oh, wow. Um, So there is this book that a colleague of mine, um, she read an excerpt from it. Um, It's called Make Your Bed. I think I shared it with you. Um, And the book sort of centers on this idea of Making your bed is valuable because you're starting off the day completing a task. Um, And so I sort of cling to anything that's like self-help or Instagram or words of wisdom that allow me to feel accomplished and sort of like motivate me and help me plan, but that I can actually stick to. And so sometimes, you know, you see like this diet or or this way of organizing and I've become much more honest with myself. Like I'm never going to do that. And then I'll feel bad about not doing it, but I can make my bed every day. Um, so I also, um, a, a, another friend told me that, you know, they, they want to meditate, they want to eat better, they want to start their mornings off more um, productive. So they have all these things in their mind that they want to do, but they say that they won't allow themselves to do it, have that tea, have that coffee, watch that show until they've sat and um, meditated for for five minutes. And so um, all those little nuggets that I get from friends or from Instagram um, that are easy, but that benefit me. So 
I don't have one, one specific book. I just have lots of little nuggets. No, that's great. Um, and this last one, you might've given us a little bit of this, but what do you do for yourself? Do you have a practice, a focus, a habit, or a daily routine that you adhere to that contributes to your success or your well-being? Ooh. I need downtime, but I've also tried to, I think the caretaking piece and the one to care for other people at some point became um, unmanageable. I had to take, you know, some time off of work when my dad was really sick and it was the heart of the pandemic. And then you find yourself, especially with our generation, where you're like, well, I have these obligations and I enjoy being with family, but I also want to take care of myself and this, you know, the term self-care. So I was sort of, I, I really came to the realization, like both things can be true. So I want, I need self-care, but sometimes what I was finding was the self-care was letting go of feeling like I'm doing something because I have to and recognizing I actually enjoy this. Like I used to think, gosh, I'm saying no too much. People say, oh, you want to go out for a drink or, oh, we're having this get together. And honestly, sometimes I'm like, that's the last thing I want to do. I actually just want to be with my family. I actually just want to have dinner with my family and cook something nice. And it felt like that wasn't self-care. So it was like this where self-care actually met like real life and being okay with that. Um, and then it made even work. You know, I, I feel good about myself when I've had a breakthrough with a student, when I've had a good lesson. Um, I actually was just having this conversation where people, I have an open door policy in my classroom and I let students eat in there. And for some of these students, they don't really feel comfortable eating somewhere else. And I'm still working. You know, I grew up with four brothers and sisters, four brothers. Um, when I was in college, I loved to be at a busy cafe. So I can completely just have these kids sitting there eating. You know, I have Scrabble for them. I have Legos. Sometimes I'll put on, they put on, can you put on a show on Netflix? And I'm still working. And I think a lot of my colleagues were like, you know, wow, you know, and boundaries and, um, I actually would never do that if I wasn't able to sort of compartmentalize and it was infringing on my like, you know, emotional, mental health. But the opposite happens. It actually feels really nice to know that I'm providing a safe space for them at lunch. Um, and uh, but if I really am being honest here, I like to shop. <laughs> <laughs> the retail retail therapy is definitely up there on the list of self-care <laughs> well perfect thank you so much for joining us it was so wonderful and fun to talk with you thanks and, ashley for having me and uh i'll talk to you soon all right take care bye okay. bye thanks for joining on the table with ashley where we'll meet individuals with thought-provoking perspectives from their varied life experiences and professions. On the table, we'll cover any topic you or I can put on the table with the goal of increasing curiosity, respect, and understanding while decreasing judgment, even when the issues discussed have sharp and contrasting viewpoints.
On the table also bridges to my company, um, Atand, which has started with the goal of helping people connect more meaningfully through straightforward, skillfully made, bespoke home goods. Check us out at amatand.com. That's A-M-E-A-T-E-N-D-R-E.com or on Instagram at amatand. And if you have ideas for future podcast episodes, shoot us an email at reachoutanytime at amatand.com. Thanks for listening.